0: Hey, this is Grady from Anxious, and you're listening to the new scene.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I am your host, Keith, and we are back with a very special bonus episode. And folks, I am not here alone. I have with me first-time guest and first-time guest co-host, Seth Hyman from Negative Progression Records. Seth, say hello.
0: Hi, uh, Keith. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yes, Seth, it is wonderful to have you here. We're back again this week for a special bonus episode to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Chamberlain's Fates Got a Driver, five years. Where does the time go? I don't know. But I have spoken to Adam Rubenstein of Chamberlain and we cover it all. We cover the history of the band, Split Lip, Into Chamberlain. We of course talk about Fate's Got a Driver. We talk about their latest 2020 record, Red Weather. We cover it all. You're going to love it. And that's coming up shortly. How about that, Seth?
0: Yeah, I'm really uh, excited to talk about it. It was a great interview, and and it really got, got me thinking about the scene in the mid-90s, Midwest, second wave emo. Really, really cool. Yeah, I mean,
1: Chamberlain, I think, are innovators in introducing Heartland rock elements into the scene. I think they were one of the first, and it seems like the rest of the world is catching up, and that's coming up shortly. But first, let me get some business out of the way. We need your support. The new scene needs your support. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at newscenepod. I'm trying to get us over 3,700 followers on Instagram. We've been teetering on the brink past 3,700, falling back down. Let's get us over 3,700. So follow us on Instagram if you're not doing that. Follow our YouTube channels. We have a main channel with full episodes. And we have a Clips channel with highlights from our favorite episodes. Like, subscribe, comment, all of that helps out a lot. We've got a shirt for sale. The new Scene Life is Music is Life shirt is available in the Death Wish Inc. store. Head on over to Death Wish Inc., search the new Scene, the shirt pops right up. Your purchase of that shirt helps directly fund this show. And we appreciate every single one of you who has purchased a shirt and reviews. We are getting ever closer to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're at 79 on Apple and 78 on Spotify. If you haven't rated us yet, open up the app, hit that five-star button, and leave a nice review. If you leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts, I'll read it on the air. Thank you so much to everybody who has submitted a review, and don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Folks, one-line-drawing is out on the Tender Wild summer tour right now. Check jonamatranga.com for tour dates. Make sure you go out and catch one-line drawing. And The Darling Fire has a new single out called Clean Hands. You want to hear it? I can't wait for this record. I can't wait for you to hear this record. It's unbelievable. Go check it out. Now, make sure you check back in with us in segment three because we're going to talk more about the discussion with Adam, and we're going to talk to Seth to hear about negative progression records and what's coming up with the label. Right, Seth?
0: Yeah, there's a lot uh, lot going on. The label is just uh, restarted, actually, after an eight-year hiatus.
1: Yeah, so we're going to hear all about that and talk about how we're doing. But folks, right now, we are going to speak to Adam Rubenstein of Chamberlain. Enjoy. We're here now with Adam Rubenstein. Adam,
2: welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Lovely to talk to you.
1: Absolutely, Adam. It's wonderful to have you here. You know, you have such a rich musical history between Split Lip and Chamberlain, and we're here celebrating the 25th anniversary of Fate's Got a Driver, and we're going to get to all that. But first,
2: Adam, let me ask you, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. Great. Kiddo got out of school, she finished kindergarten, and um, summertime, summer fun is starting. I'm in full dad rock mode.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you just have the one kid?
2: Yeah, yeah. Just the one kid.
1: Yeah. One's enough. That'll keep you really busy, you know?
2: Uh, Yes, that is an understatement. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Where are you living these days?
2: Uh, I live in New York, in uh, in Harlem, to be uh, exact, Um, just north of, of Central Park.
1: Oh, get out of town. I'm in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn.
2: Oh, you are? Oh, well, yeah. why haven't we hung out? This is absurd. I mean, tch, if only we had known. Yeah, um, I'm in Williamsburg quite often. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a shout.
1: Absolutely. That would be awesome. Yeah. So let's get to know you a bit, Adam. Where did you grow up?
2: Uh, I mean, I consider myself from Indiana. I moved to Indiana in 1989, but I was actually born in Chicago. Moved to San Diego, moved to Brussels, Belgium, and then, um, yeah, moved, yeah, like I said, in 1989, moved to Indiana, and, um, yeah, I, I met Curtis from the band like one of my first days at school because, you know, I was wearing a, um, Santa Cruz, like slime balls shirt, and, you know, in suburban, sort of upper class, um, Indianapolis, northern Indianapolis, where we lived, um, it was unusual. And sort of counterculture to skateboard. So like us a, a skaters kind of hung out together. <laughs> yeah,
1: skating used to be a really fringe thing. I only knew a few people who did it or talked about it or whatever. And by the time my younger sister went to middle school in the early to mid 2000s, like th- that was just what everybody did. That was like who you wanted
2: to hang out with. I was like, boy, things have changed. Absolutely. And and with music too, it was like, there's a good yeah. chance that if somebody skated that they had also they were also like fans of of punk rock or or hardcore or, or something in that um in that sort of ecosphere
1: <laughs> exactly wait so you said you moved from san diego to belgium to indiana what did your parents do
2: uh my dad was a scientist and he he worked but then he kind of transitioned into like the pharmaceutical and biotech side of things so i don't know He he got wanderlust, I guess, (laughs) and and, and, and got moved around. So you settle in Indiana. You meet your future bandmate at
1: school. Talk about that. Talk about your experiences with music, the initial music that grabbed you, discovering the local scene around there, all of that kind of thing.
2: Well, I mean, my first love was like metal. Uh, Growing up in Belgium, I had this friend, this dude, Carlo uh, who played guitar and kind of like showed me the ropes. Like he was a couple years older than I was, but you know, we got into anything that had like, we would go to the local record store and find anything that was cool that had like Eddie from iron maiden, or you now I once bought a record by a band called Satan just cause it was called Satan and it had a cool, <laughs> it had a cool, uh, caricature on it, but it was actually a good record. And, you know, we just sat in my house and, and learned as many like metal riffs as we possibly could. And, um, You know, it was, I was kind of crushed to leave him and then moved to Indiana. But once I moved to Indiana, like I said, I met, I met Curtis first and then, uh, we skated together, but then we we weren't initially in a band together. He knew that I played, I knew that he played, but I kind of wanted to do my own thing. And I met this other dude, Cole and this other dude, Simon. We kind of, we formed, uh, I wasn't really good enough to play like real thrash metal. So we ended up sort of sounding more like, um green day or something (laughs) like we were a punk band (laughs) like we were heavy but um it was much more melodic than than the stuff that i was into um so yeah i had this band called decrepit and then split lip and decrepit uh used to play shows together at like we played the the first show we ever played together was at the you know carmel indiana lions club it was like a, a homeless benefit
1: so you're playing in decrepit but you're playing shows with split lip how do you transition from the metal world to what Split Lip was doing?
2: Curtis just had asked me to join the band because um, I, I was kind of, you know, getting a little. Uh, I was a I was fronting the band. I was singing, and like it, it didn't feel natural to me. Um, and I think Kurt, Curtis asked me to come and jam with them, and thought they could maybe use another guitar player. And you know, the Charlie was in the band, and Clay, and Curtis. We had a different singer named uh, Steve um we all went over to clay's house and played together and it just it it was really nice to have to not be carrying all of the guitar and all of the vocals (laughs) myself and i think it suited my personality a lot better to just be a member of a a collective like that
1: yeah absolutely and talk about the early days then i mean you're in split lit now you're playing like what kind of music are you into what are the shows like? I'm curious about uh, those days because they're certainly a lot different from right now.
2: Yeah. I mean, what was cool was, like I said, I was like in the metal and it wasn't that much of a bridge to get into like punk rock. But um, in Indianapolis, there was, you know, amongst like in high school, there was a little really cool little underground scene. And there was some basement shows, shows in clothing stores. Like I said, shows in, in VFW Hall, rented out rooms. Um, you know if I could name drop some bands there's like a great band called Outspoken that were kind of like Praggy and a little punk there was a band called jot Steve kowalski's Army it was really awesome uh, there was all these little niche bands that were, I'm telling you were really really good bands and um you know then I thought uh those bands were like sort of my elders but they were probably you know two years older at the time <laughs> yeah. um, but I was in ninth grade um, when I first started playing music with, uh, split lip. So, you know, someone who's in 11th grade felt like a a pseudo adult.
1: It really does. Like uh, I started going to shows in 10th or 11th grade and I would go see these bands and they were like adults to me. But now I talk to a lot of them on the podcast and I've realized they're either the same age as me or just a couple years older.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, bands used to come into town, um, that were, yeah, like a few years older than us you know we i mean to transition a little bit i mean one of the first shows we played once david was in the band was in Louisville Kentucky and we met endpoint and they were you know not much older than us but they felt like and when they came to town it it felt like um our big brothers were in town um that like they were absolutely adults but they were still, they, we were all kids. Like all of us were kids.
1: <laughs> exactly. Some people are just further along in the process. Like if a band that you respect comes along and has a record that you really love, they're like otherworldly almost to a degree.
2: Absolutely. Like you, I would get starstruck by like, you know, just bands that played on seven inches on like no name labels. You know, I would know their songs and they would come to town and it definitely felt. Yeah. As if like seasoned, you know, adults in the punk rock world were 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 coming to play and I was definitely a little awestruck sometimes just like hearing songs that I heard on a record played live in, in front of my face.
1: So it, Split Lip is playing, Endpoint is around. Who are the bands that are, are around at this time? Like who are people looking up to and aspiring to be?
2: Well, um man, you're you're testing my uh my memory. <laughs> <laughs> the charlie from the band is the guy who tends to remember everything not me um but you know there was this uh like there was dayton and there was louisville and you know indie chicago you know there was bands i mean like we played a show with like one of tony victory's first bands called like even score um, i think we we're on that show or maybe i was just there um but we also had um you know friends in dayton there's a band called stronghold we played with a lot. We had friends, you know, in other parts of Ohio. I mean, that was our first introduction to Dirk and and Doghouse Records was uh, through his bands, Transcend and Majority of One. And then, of course, there was you know Louisville. There was Endpoint. There was Metro Shifter. Uh, there was c- quite a little scene we had going in the Midwest then, um, and it all kind of culminated too in Dayton. They had the More the Music Festival that we played a couple years, and um, people from sort of all over the Eastern U.S. specifically um you know dc virginia a lot of really cool bands some some revelation bands would come and play yeah i mean i, I could i could talk about those festivals ad, ad nauseum but um there there was definitely uh quite a groundswell and, and a movement uh than in in the kind of punk and hardcore scene
1: talk about the festival a little bit it sounds like there would be a lot of different types of bands there
2: there would be i mean you know one of the things that always kind of frustrate split lip is we would always sort of be on these shows with, you know, the integrities or uh, dead guys or s- snap. We always be on these uh, bills with like these really heavy bands and we were called split lip. So people just thought that we fit in. Um, but the cool thing then is like, you know, it, it, more than music, like I, I should probably uh, look up a flyer so I can recall everything, but there was like interesting sort of like art bands, like, you know, um Hoover Lungfish and then there was certainly like, you know, uh heavier bands, World Collide, but then you'd have like Into Another or Um, you know, who were just like, you know, melodic metal, or then you'd have you know, I'm trying to remember if all these bands actually played more than music. Um <laughs> but then we'd have our friends, you know, Ashes from from DC, uh Brian McTernan's band. Um Yes. They had a you know a female uh singer, Elena, who we cl- collaborated with um down the line a little bit. Um there were melodic bands too that were just playing great that they, that had some songcraft too, um, that weren't just, you know, uh chess beating uh hardcore bands. But all of it fit together and I think at the time there was just like a thirst for it. like we we're all in high school and you know, grunge was coming along, so you would turn MTV and there was, you know. Eddie Vedder, you know, jumping off of uh, PA speakers into, like, a crowd of, like, you know, moshing human beings. And I I think that sort of movement of, like, grunge sort of collided with our punk hardcore world and made those shows, like, really popular amongst, like, high school kids.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think there was just a thirst for guitar-driven music. There was so much interesting stuff happening at the time. Like, when I think about some of those bands that were actually on MTV, I'm like, wow, that's pretty incredible. There was like actual real good music happening
2: everywhere. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, going back to, to that scene, you know, like the, the, the biggest bands like in, in the, you know, when the Seattle movement happened, I remember seeing, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit on um, there's a show called Video Jukebox. You had to kind of stay up late and you could call in and then you would request a video. Uh, I was on yeah. sort of like a public access channel. And I remember I saw Smells Like Teen Spirit on that first. I remember my first thought was like, oh, shit, they're on to us. Like our scene, <laughs> like our little scene has now been hijacked. It's been hijacked by the mainstream and it'll never be the same. And um, but it was true. But I mean, Nirvana was a good band. Um, I mean, you look at a band like Soundgarden, you know, this unicorn, like amazing vocalist and Chris Cornell and writing these, you know. Jesus Christ, post or Spoonman, or all these like bizarro world songs that transcended into the mainstream and people people loved it. Um, it was art, you know, it was art rock. Uh, you don't in our kind of pop universe now. They're, they're, it's hard to imagine, you know, band, a band like Faith No More <laughs> like shooting to yeah. the top of the charts. Like it doesn't seem possible.
1: Right. That's interesting that you saw smells like Teen Spirit and thought oh no like they're on to our thing because you know most of the people that i talk to it's like oh i got inspired by nirvana or you know they were inspired by them later so it, it's funny to hear that from the other side
2: yeah i mean I, i'm dating myself but absolutely <laughs> absolutely, you know um we were like they sounded counterculture to me and and what we were doing at the time in our sort of skate punk scene was counterculture and it was you know kids um, expressing themselves physically, you know, moshing and dressing kind of the way that they did in that video, you know, baggy clothes and not well laundered clothing for lack of a a better description. (laughs) And it it, it felt that way. It felt like, oh man, like punk rock's coming to the mainstream. Here it is. It's crazy to think about a band
1: as big as Nirvana being outspoken about all the positive things they were outspoken about, like women's rights and anti-homophobia and all that stuff, because all that stuff was rampant at the time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we were pretty like politically active too. You know, I talk about endpoint endpoint was super politically active. Um, You know, we always, you know, we're high school kids, so we're a little bit melodramatic about everything. Um, Yeah. But we always, you know, I don't remember all the statements we were trying to make, but um, <laughs> we we definitely uh, strive to sort of be viewed as a as a you know a force for um for change and for, for looking at things differently and for being accepting of everyone um especially in a, in a very conservative Midwest.
1: Absolutely. So talk about Split Lip and the growth of the band. You know, leading into you switching over to Chamberlain.
2: Well, uh, I should say, I was talking about, we first had Steve, who's in the band, and it was, that was pretty short-lived. Um, David was kind of part of the, the hardcore scene, and he came over and, and rehearsed with us, and um, we preferred David's voice um, to Steve's, so <laughs> Steve was let go. Um, we are split up for a long time, uh, and, and the sort of template for split-lip was, you know, like I said, I grew up in Metalhead, Charlie kind of grew up in Metalhead we would write these sort of metal inspired riffs, but uh, we also love melody. You know, David grew up with Bob Dylan and then seven seconds. And, um, we love Nasty and, and all these sort of more melodic bands. So we we're always kind of towing this line between like being a tough punk sort of hardcore band and wanting to write songs and sing songs and do things where that were much more melodious. Um, so when I listened to like split lips for the love of the wounded, you know, there's moments that it it almost sounds like an anthrax record or something. (laughs) Like it doesn't sound, (laughs) it doesn't sound like a a Chamberlain record at all. Um, And then I think, you know, once we had decided to, to change the name, but yeah, once we, uh, there was, there was a conscious effort to sort of just like, we were listening to, you know, stuff that was, uh, more traditional in terms of like song structures, you know, the songs on uh, Face Got a Driver that are certainly Five Year Diary, for example, you know, it's sort of like a power ballad. And then there's an acoustic song at the end. And I mean, that that's the transition just started to happen naturally. And and we all, you know, I was saying there's all this exciting music in the world then, and in and mainstream radio everywhere. Like everything was good. I just feel like, I think everyone thinks that about their, you know, late teens and early 20s. That seems like the golden age of music. But, I really do. I mean, we're on the same page on this. Like, I, I really do believe it, it was. And then, then you had, you know, Radiohead and Oasis and, and, you know, all these other bands sort of coming to the, the forefront that were just wrote great songs. And I think that, um, infected us to, to a degree. Um, and we got a little bit out of the chugga chugga and more into the strummy strummy. <laughs> and, um, we originally had released fate's got a driver as a split lip record and the name just didn't, it just didn't fit with the sort of ethos and the sound that we, the new sound that we had sort of created for ourselves. Uh, We just felt like more of a rock band, you know, we still like love the punk scene and and a lot of the songs are pretty, um, you know, punk or emo leaning, but uh, we just thought that if we changed the name to Chamberlain, it would add a, a sort of sense of, refinement i guess to to what we were trying to do absolutely did the name split lip
1: cause confusion throughout the time for the band then because it it does sound like a tough name
2: yeah uh and like i said we were we were playing with all these tough guy bands um and i remember uh you know in that era we would start to get you know letters and calls we play in new york and there'd always be an a and r guy there and I I asked Nate and our guy who was he became a, a good friend of ours, you know. I remember specifically walking down walking through Soho with him and saying, like, is this is this hurting us, this name split lip? I feel like it's hurting us because everyone just assumes that um, you know, we're a, a, a New York hardcore band or something. Um <laughs> and he didn't give me a straight answer, but um I'm I'm glad that we changed the name, even though it was like an audacious thing to do. It was ridiculous. Like we put out a record that sounded the way it did and um had a certain degree of success because we were already had a name for ourselves with split lip and then we just i mean god bless doghouse but they just agreed to put out the same exact record with remix differently with new vocals and call it chamberlain and just put it out again <laughs> like I, I don't i i've never heard of this story in, in rock history um I think we may or we may have been the only only uh, band to ever ever take that approach. I don't know. I think uh, you and Elliot are the only bands to ever do that.
1: Oh, Elliot did it as well. Well, it's a little different. Elliot did False Cathedrals. They released that, and then two people left the band, and they got new people, so they re-recorded it, but the songs changed, and then they they eventually released that.
2: Oh. But it's still called Elliot. Yeah. Okay. So it's
1: kind of the same, but kind of different too.
2: Right. If Elliot had changed their name to Jeffrey, <laughs> then it would be the same thing. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, so, yeah. So that is a pretty bold move. I mean, it sounds like people's tastes changed as they do uh, as we're growing up. I mean, my musical taste has evolved greatly over the years. It sounds like we were into different things and you just wanted. A name change and uh, the record to sound more like what you were presently into. Yes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just split lip. Just seemed like it was just our way to kind of demark the end of early adolescence and move into right. sort of like the college years. Um, and we just, you know, we f- and there was this whole indie rock thing happening too, right? And we wanted to be right. part of that too. You know, we wanted to be able to, you know, play shows with. You know super chunk or archers of Loaf for pavement, like we wanted to like be that too, um because we were just we were just curious about everything um like we loved that scene, but we also like like I said, there was so much good music coming out then that we wanted to uh we wanted to transcend the scene that we were in, which never really happened but but we always wanted that
1: <laughs> well i I have some follow up questions about this, yeah, how did it go over at the time? I mean, this is back when like pre two thousand I think. These types of things made people much more upset. Like how did it go over at the time?
2: Well, I mean, it, it wasn't uh it was a slow transition. I mean, when Fates came out, we had a pretty positive reaction to it. You know, I remember playing like the song The Simple Life in in the car for some friends, and they were a little taken aback that we had just decided to write a full blown acoustic song, you know, coming from the sort of metal infused years that were split lip. It, it sounded odd but but there was an acceptance and I, I think people understood that we were all evolving as musicians you know it wasn't until i mean the real backlash happened when we put out the moon my saddle because that you know whereas Fates was a departure from for the love moon my saddle was like tenfold um as much of a departure from fates to the next record it, it was you know we had made a, a a record that you know sounded more like um Heartland Rock. <laughs> Which yeah. is kind of what we were into at the time.
1: And you know, you said with the name change and the change in sound you were hoping it would open up new doors and you know, you could tap into this indie world and playing with different kinds of
2: bands. Did that happen? It didn't. I don't think we ever had the sort of like infrastructure. I mean, you know, again, I'm dating myself, but like we didn't even like have a website. You know, it's like all of our shows were done through word of mouth and sort of like hard copy address book. <laughs> you know, we knew the promoters yeah. that we knew, we knew the friends and other bands. Like I don't think we knew how to sort of tour. Like we didn't have an agent, you know, and we were on Doghouse Records, so we would typically do stuff with um tangential Doghouse stuff. Uh, you know, we would do stuff with, you know, bands on Revelation or Discord or like we just we were just um we created this world for ourselves which was a beautiful world but we just um we didn't know how to branch out beyond its boundaries it just it was sort of beyond the knowledge that we had you know had we had a a manager or something at the time like perhaps but um you know we loved the scene too so we didn't want to completely abandon it so we just kept doing what we were doing um and perhaps we did it for too long <laughs> <laughs>
1: So you didn't have like a manager and a booking agent and people like getting you onto these different shows. It sounds like you guys were still operating within the scene and figuring things out yourself.
2: Yeah. It was super DIY. It wasn't until around the time we recorded the Moon My Saddle that, you know, we we dabbled with, with management and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I think we went so far to that kind of Heartland Rock sound on the Moon My Saddle. I think that was sort of a conscious thing. I think we were just like tired of playing hardcore shows and we, you know, we wanted to be on bigger stages and, and play in bigger clubs. And I think we thought that if we just, you know I mean it was the stuff we love. We were listening to the band and Tom Petty and Bob Dylan and uh Tom Waits, Elvis Costello. Like we were and we lived in Bloomington, Indiana too at the time. So we had definitely um been influenced by sort of john mellencamp's universe you know we even recorded the record at at john mellencamp's guitar player studio mike wancheck and he performs on the record too as did uh mosey who was mellencamp's uh organ player so we were enamored and we looked up to all those guys and uh i think we just took a big swing in that direction like hoping that it would like take us to the other side of the river (laughs) (laughs) um but but that was the tough part because it it really didn't we were still then we were still playing the hardcore shows and um, we were playing songs like Try for Thunder and, and Mountain of a Heart and people really, really didn't like it. I mean, we lost a lot of fans along the way when we did that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, I guess if you're just still operating within that scene, you know, people aren't ready for it or at least they weren't at the time. And I get it. Like, I remember playing shows in certain bands and I'm like, man, I feel like this is really good. We just need to get on the right shows. But I I never could. I didn't know how. I didn't know about booking agents and PR agents and actually putting in the work to get on those shows. I didn't know about any of that stuff.
2: No, we were just novices and all of that. How old were you at that time? Well, I mean, when The Moon My Saddle came out, I was probably uh, wrapping up school. So maybe 19, 20, 19 or 20. Oh, wow. So you guys are really young still. I'm the youngest guy in the band. So, yeah, so we were all super early 20s at that point. And that's usually around the
1: age that, you know, you're moving beyond just hardcore and discovering other music and growing as a musician and person and all that stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, um, you know, there was such a, um, yeah, the, the, the scene that we're in was just, you know, very stringent and still sort of rebellious and counterculture so like what we were doing it it had its 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 certain stamp but yeah i think eventually everyone kind of went with us right i mean yeah there's you know anything it's roots tinged i mean now you know bands we used to play with like a veil you know you know look look what how tim barry has evolved (laughs) or how uh chuck reagan or you know lucero came along limbeck who we were on doghouse, like that became part of the scene um and I'm not trying to like put us on some pedestal that was like we were the first to do something super special. What we were doing wasn't that special, like we were playing kind of roots rock, but w- we were kind of one of the first bands in our little universe to sort of uh cross that line into something that you know everyone else sort of gravitated towards um, a little later <laughs> than we did.
1: No, absolutely. Like when I think of that whole scene and that whole thing, like you're one of the first bands I can think of within the scene to lock onto that.
2: Yeah. And you know, I, I shouldn't say that it was like a conscious thing to like get out. I mean, it, it, we did kind of want to leave the scene. Um, but it was, you know, I, I, sh- I should emphasize that it. It was natural too. I mean, it was just, I wanted to be a guitar player and I wanted to, you know, play guitar solos and, and, you know, uh, David wanted to like really, really sing. Yeah, you are You guys are just doing what you're
1: doing. It's not like you sat down and planned like, okay, we're going to be a Heartland scene band
2: and this is what we're going to do next. I think we just got better. We just got better at our instruments, you know, and it's funny because I listen to Moon My Saddle now and I'm just like, it's still kind of sound, there's still parts of it that, you know, it doesn't, people are like, oh, it sounds like a Counting Crows record. I'm like, well, sort of, but it also yeah. like, you know, I feel like Charlie is still like, Playing his drums is as you know heavy as a metal drummer would play them and and Curtis is still playing these intricate sort of fagazzi inspired bass lines, so it's I think that's what makes the record have the angst that it has, and I think it's why why it's held up for a lot of people um which is is moving for us,
1: yeah, I think about this a lot with like with scene bands who go lighter, you know there's still an edge to it there's still definitely an edge to it like if you listen to like a lighter scene band that would be acceptable to a lot of scene people. But then you listen to like a mainstream radio hit. I'm like, Oh, okay. I can see the difference here. Cause you know, like when I was a kid, I would show people the get up kids and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, Oh, they're going to love it because it's not screaming, but it would still be like too much for them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. They wrote, they wrote, you know, sort of like happier folk songs, but they were still played with this angular grit that, that was yep. the get up kids.
1: So the moon, my saddle is out. You said folks are not so receptive to it in the scene. Where does it all lead? What happens after
2: that? Well, um it dissolves. <laughs> <laughs> um I think there was some animosity and some uh frustration amongst a lot of us because you know, I still love punk, I still love metal, but I also, you know, love roots rock. I love Wilco. I think all of us were like that to some degree, but there was definitely a lot of push and pull where I feel like everyone wasn't on the same page and we did fates. I feel like everyone was playing this, the exact songs we thought we should be playing for, you know, what we were listening to and our talent level and our scene and all that. And then we got to the moon, my saddle, it was like, uh, I don't think everyone liked all the songs. Like, you know, we're five guys with five different, um, you know, we were in college, we we're hanging out with different friends, different groups. So it got, it got weird, you know, it definitely got weird. So eventually, Curtis and clay left the band to do other things. And Charlie stayed around for a little bit and then Charlie wasn't in the band. And then, you know, David and I just kind of found new people to play and, uh, thought we would just make new songs and keep Chamberlain going. But it, it never had the same chemistry ever again. And we finally had the book. The the irony is we finally had the, like the booking agent that was putting us in these, like we're playing colleges and like college towns. And, you know, we're playing like in, you know, bars where people could drink and it, it felt like this is what we wanted to do. Um, but the irony is we were just like the most unhappy that we had ever been. <laughs> and the band had lost all of its, you know, we were a good bands though, but we just, we lost all the edge that we had and the identity that we had, you know, uh, we just, we didn't have an identity anymore. You know, I, I can say that now. So it, it dissolved. And then, um, and from there, you know, um, we were asked to do this burning fight festival um, to support um, the book burning fight that was written about the, the hardcore scene in the Midwest. And we ended up tacking on a show in Indy and tacking on a show in Louisville. And we just kind of like fell in love with playing music together with together again, all the chemistry came back. I should say, actually we, we got together a year before at South by Southwest because uh, Charlie and Curtis and Dave and I were all playing in different bands and we, did like a little impromptu few songs but then we did um but burning fight was the thing that really ignited it that was around uh 2008 right 2009 south by southwest is 2008 then 2009 and then um we played shows and and through that i don't know how word uh trickled up but uh i was sitting at my desk at work and i got a call from the gaslight anthems manager and she was like hey Brian really loves you guys and wants to know if you want to support them on their American slang tours. We did that in 2010 and then we've been kind of doing things off and on like since then essentially.
1: So the band initially ended around 2000? Yes. So that's 2000 to 2008 where there's no activity. How did you guys leave it? Were you on were you on good terms? Was everyone okay? Like
2: no we we didn't really none of us spoke to each other you know um some of us were raising families you know curtis moved out to la um charlie was playing in a bunch of different bands we just we really uh lost touch with each other um you know clay was raising a family i was trying to do music in new york um you know we all just like just did different things and nobody spoke (laughs) and i should say that you know after 2010 we played crazy fest in 2011 and we kind of, we we liked each other again. There was that. <laughs> but we kind of went back to our lives for a, li- you know, for a big gap of time after that as well. Until, like, we decided to get back together to do the Moon My Saddle uh, 20th anniversary tour.
1: <laughs> so after the initial end of the band, you said you're playing in New
2: York City? Yeah, I, I moved out here. I put out my own record, the Adam Dove record, and I was trying to do that initially. Um and then I I formed a band called Dear Lions with some friends. And uh, you know, nothing really got off the ground. <laughs> um but you know, I played with various people and started uh working in commercial music a little bit and not not that exciting of a story on my end.
1: <laughs> well, how did you feel during that time? Like did you Look fondly back on the Chamberlain days. Did you wish you guys had continued or could continue? Like, where were you at at the time before you guys got back together?
2: I did. I mean, I'll I'll say this: I I know that I'm probably the reason that we're still doing stuff today. Um, I'm always the guy that pushes it to happen. Um, and I, I just um my personality is one that can't let go of things easily. Um, and I do realize that like we had something special. And every time we get together, it's still something special, you know, and uh, which takes me to like, uh, you know, in 2018, we had the best time on the Moon My Saddle tour. Uh, And then we decided, like, we haven't been to Europe in 20 years either. Like, fuck it. Like, let's go to Europe. (laughs) And then we did like a week overseas. And, you know, 20 years later, sold out our show in Berlin. And it was like all, you know, just magic stuff. And I know what it's like you know, to like moving to New York and trying to do my own thing and playing shows and having, you know, six people in the bartender watching you play. Um, So like, I don't, I don't take it for granted even now, you know, it's not like we bring like hundreds and hundreds of people into our shows, but like people show up and sing our songs. And, and that's something that I, I don't, I don't take for granted.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I discovered the band, I think around 2004 when I got heavily into post hardcore and, and that whole scene. And I discovered the band through Fate's Got a Driver. And I didn't know the history of the band, or that you used to be Split Lip, or that there was, you know, some name change and all this stuff that other people have mentioned. But to me, it was just great music. I really dig it.
2: Well, well, thank you.
1: And uh, part of the reason that we're talking today is because it's the 25th anniversary of Fate's Got a Driver. Did you ever imagine, back in 1995, when making that record, that you'd be here today, still talking about it?
2: Uh, absolutely not. Um, well, I should, I should, I should clarify that. Yeah, I guess I thought I'd probably be doing something different. Um, yeah, I'll stick with the original. I'll stick with the original. Yes, absolutely not. You know, I kind of thought that like this was like something we were doing as kids that would just evolve into something um bigger, and we we had a tendency to sort of like trash the old songs. Like you know, we'd write songs and then not want to play them ever again. (laughs) We're still kind of like that, but. Yeah. I mean, there was a while I couldn't even listen to, to face because it just, the tempos were all over the place and it just felt sort of, you know, angsty and, and, and full of, um, like novice adolescence. Like I just couldn't, couldn't listen to it. And then something happened over time where it's just like I started to like it. It started to grow back on me again. <laughs> and then we played the songs live now with, with, you know, our current maturity. We played the songs in tempo and. You know, I, I I recognize some of the songs is pretty good, but I'm not really answering your question. Um, I, I guess the short answer is no. <laughs> um, I thought that it was just, you know, a couple years removed from, from faith. I just thought it was just kids banging on their instruments. Like, why would anybody want to listen to it? I mean, you must have been, what, 16, 17 when that was being recorded? I was maybe 18, 18, I think.
1: I mean, that's pretty sophisticated music for an 18-year-old, I got to say.
2: Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Well, I wrote, I remember writing a lot of in the dorms when I was like a freshman in um in college. So yeah, I think I was like eighteen. Take us
1: back to some of that time. I mean, uh, like recording the record, right? We, you already had it out under Split Lip, but we decided to go back and change the name. Did they did they re record the vocals or did you re record the music? Like, what did you change?
2: You know, I think what it was is we we went on tour and and played a lot of those songs um the summer after we, we recorded it, and we realized like man, we are playing these songs better than they are on the record now. That we're like growing up fast at that age. And David is singing them way better than he um, had done on his first attempt. So we're like, let's go back and and redo the vocals. Let's just redo this. Instead of like re-recording the record, we just thought like we could fix the vocals and maybe remix it and, and make it better. And really the split lip version and the Chamberlain version are not a whole lot different to my ears. People argue with me on this, but they're not that much different.
1: Yeah, I, I've on forums and stuff, I've heard older guys be like, oh, they changed the name and oh, they changed this. But I I, I wasn't around. I, I wasn't privy to any of that. All I know is that is I discovered this awesome record, Fate's Got a Driver by Chamberlain and that I've liked it ever since. And uh, I just have to throw it in. I think Simple Life is one of the best songs ever. There you oh, go.
2: Thank you. Um. Yes, I
1: still listen to that one to this day.
2: Well, I appreciate that you are not one of those old guys that like has all the, you know, angry, hardcore baggage.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I envy you um, to just kind of listen <laughs> listen to it with fresh ears without all, all that ridiculous knowledge.
1: Yeah. I, well, I think that's, it sounds like that's some of what happened to the band. Like, it sounds like maybe the world wasn't ready or the time wasn't right or all that stuff. But then slightly younger people like myself just discover this and they're like, Hey, this is great music. And it sounds like, it sounds like the rest of the world caught up. I mean, you're out on tour with the gaslight Anthem. Certainly there's more of a Americana thing happening within the realm of punk music. And now it's your time.
2: Yeah. And, and it's, it's great for you to say that. I mean, yeah, I, we definitely picked up fans on that gaslight Anthem tour and, you know, we made a record in, in 2020, um, called red weather. and, i feel like it's like the next evolution it's like i feel like we're just making the music that we want to make now and people like it and it doesn't have um that sort of cloudiness to it like where does it belong it doesn't matter where things belong anymore things belong everywhere um there's just again we didn't we didn't have all the mediums we didn't have streaming and and uh, social media and and all, all the stuff that's available to us now um, that allows music in any form to exist everywhere. <laughs> it's not beholden to any scene.
1: Exactly. I think after the year 2000, around there, a lot of the BS stopped. Of like, oh, this band does this, and they can't do that, and oh, they signed to this label. Like that became. It seems like that became much less of a thing. So it's it's probably great now that you can just be a band and record the music you want to record and put it out there, and people like it. Or they don't, and if they don't, well, whatever.
2: Yeah, and I don't know where all that tribalism came from. It's sort of like, you know, it's like in the hip-hop scene, you know. Growing up, there was like, you know, the East Coast, West Coast, like, uh, riff. Like, I don't think that really exists anymore in the hip-hop world either. I mean, it just feels ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it seems like it doesn't now. Yeah. So, how does the band decide they're going to play again? I mean, you guys weren't really talking, it sounds like. How did the conversation start? How does it all come together? And now this is back in 2008 for the uh, South by Southwest gig and the burning fight gig.
2: Oh, I mean, the South by Southwest thing was just a goof. Like, we were all there. And I kind of emailed all the guys. And I was like, let's just try to do something with no rehearsal. Like, there's this doghouse showcase. Like, let's just show up and play. And we did. And it was a blast. And and we had so much fun. But, uh, you know, what? it was with the burning fight thing. It was just like, um, Brian, who wrote the book. um, You know, I'm not going to say we did it for money. But he basically, you know, offered us enough money to cover our flights to get there. (laughs) And it just felt like, and then the show was at the Metro. We never played the Metro in Chicago. And it just, it felt like this, um, life gives you lemons moment where it was just like, we can't turn this down. Like playing for like a huge crowd at the Metro. Like, you know, it was the same reason we went on the Gaslight Tour. I was like, we're playing the Wiltern and First Avenue and all these clubs I'd always dreamed of playing. So it felt like that. I mean, that that was really the impetus. And then, like I said, we just tacked on some some other shows in our hometown, of course, and in, in Louisville, our, our second hometown. But uh, I don't think it was without trepidation from some of the members. I don't remember exactly. Um, I'm sure I had to do some cajoling with David. I'm sure I had to talk David into it. I probably had to talk Curtis into it, too, because <laughs> the other thing was we just we weren't like best friends then either. And I think that experience made us really good friends again, because we just got back in the room and everyone had the same idiosyncrasies, the same humor came back. Uh And then musically, just like it was seamless. We just started playing the songs um and they just felt like they always have. You know, and I guess that comes from growing up and being in the van with those guys and being in the practice space with them for, you know, all of all of our formative years together. You know, we're definitely... Close to like related brothers, in that sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, you spend so much time together and growing up together. You have to be.
2: Yes, I mean, and and there are still text chains, um that you know go on weekly with the same kind of humor and, and jokes and, <laughs> and silliness, um, and yeah, I hope I hope it stays that way. Did you see
1: renewed interest? in the band before you played those shows and got out there again i mean the internet is around and blogs and social media and all this stuff is happening and younger people like me are discovering the band i mean were you privy to any of that
2: not really not really i I actually was you know i think one of the we were so nervous to play those shows um because we're like oh my god we haven't done this in years like does anyone you know give a shit anymore um but then you know i should say after that actually before the gaslight i left out another important show we actually played at the bowery ballroom um and almost sold it out and, and that's when i kind of knew like oh my god like we still have like this staying power that was in um yeah that was also at the end of uh 2009 um we played with walter Schreifels and our friends in atlantic pacific i wish i was here for that show but i didn't live here at the time wow yeah, and we build ourselves as split lips slash Chamberlain for that show, too, just because we wanted to get everybody to come, you know, um, <laughs> we didn't care. It was like it felt like a reunion of old friends, you know, and it was. Yeah. Um, but that show was just cathartic for me, at least personally. I can't speak for the other guys, but um, it was like my favorite show I've ever played. I, I didn't talk about it. Just seeing all those faces, you know, singing back at us um, in New York City. You know, we used to play like the Acme Underground or, you know, Coney Island or or whatever to, you know, nobody. <laughs> That's got
1: to be the best feeling, you know, because back when you're actually doing it, you're not playing to as many people or the scene you're involved with doesn't quite understand what you're doing. And then to be in your home city in a full house, I would have been a wreck. And I mean, a wreck in a good way.
2: Yeah, it was it was super emotional. Um, yeah, Absolutely. And I think we kind of just did it at the right time, you know, to kind of sustain us for a bit. (laughs) But so to answer your question, like, did, did I know, you know, that maybe there's still some interest. It it took, it took probably that show for me to realize that like, Oh, there is, there is still interest and, um, and we can still play and, you know, no band has to break up anymore. Like you can just do it when you want to do it. You don't have to make it your like, uh, and I, it got easier too. Like when, you know, we, we have other lives and there's not, everything isn't riding on it. I mean, it's like, we made a new record in 2020. It was so great being in the studio because we're like, someone has an idea and I don't like your idea. Okay. Let's try a different idea. Like <laughs> I'll still go back home to my family. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Like we just are trying to make the best music we can and it sucks. You have to wait that long in life to get to that realization, but you know, all things in, in their time.
1: Exactly. I'm 40 years old now, and I'm only starting to handle things in a more mature fashion. So when I was younger, forget about it. If someone didn't like my idea or wanted to change something, I would just quit the band or, I don't know, quit the band.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the things that I would get upset about, you know, someone didn't like the tone on a certain guitar part or something like I definitely would storm out of the room absurd absurd the convictions you have (laughs) when you're super young
1: so talk about recording your
2: 2020
1: record red weather i mean this is the first time we're recording again in a long time how was the process we don't have this history to deal with anymore and name changes and a scene that wants us to be one thing but we're trying to do another thing we can just be ourselves and be adults and be friends and record this thing yes
2: yeah, it was a big experiment. I mean, it's our, our friend Carl Bramwell from the band My Morning Jacket, who's we've known since we were kids. He's got a little studio at his place in Nashville and he had a little live room we wanted to do the main tracks in. And it started with, Hey, we're going to Europe. We might want to do like a seven inch or single before our European tour. And Carl just said, and we were thinking about making a record and Carl's like, why don't you guys just come to Nashville? We'll do a couple songs. If it's working, if it feels right. And we have a good time, and let's make a record. And so we went down, no expectations. Did have a great time. We wrote uh, some other sky and and put it. You know, we actually recorded the song Red Weather as well while we were down there. Um, in that first uh, run, and, and we did an acoustic version of Street Singer from Fate's Got a Driver. And uh, I felt great when we were done with it. I felt like man, like there's just so much more in us. Um, that was like no one knew the songs coming down there. We just kind of like hashed it out in the studio and came out with something good. It's so like, we can surely put together like another eight songs and, and make a record. So um, we went down and and Carl was incredible. He's one of my like favorite musicians and, and writers that I know. And he, he just helped us craft this thing and make it sound like us. And I think we did a really good job too of just, instead of fighting like we did with the Moon My Saddle when everyone had different influences, like sure, we all listen to a lot of different things now after all of these years. But I think all of our, uh, all of us put our stamp on it. You know, we figured out a way to just make songs we all liked and we compromised. You know, I mean, everyone has different favorite songs because nobody cared. If somebody didn't like an idea, somebody didn't like a drum part or a guitar part or a bass line or a vocal lyric, we would just change it <laughs> or try something else. You know, and it certainly makes me want to do it again because, um, you know, the, the secret is we just didn't, you know, I, I came down with a handful of ideas and, David and I wrote a little bit in advance, but really not much. It was basically some core progressions and and you know uh, some scribbled down lyrics.
1: <laughs> that sounds so scary to me. Like I would need all the songs fully and completely done before I went down there. Like how much? How much were you working on and coming up with in the studio? A lot,
2: a lot. <laughs> I mean, wow. Um, we kind of decided we would do like two or three songs a day, and whatever happened would happen. And I think it's what gives the record its charm. And then there's a, you know, calling all cars, which is probably the most popular song from the record. We actually wrote it after we had finished in the studio. I was like, man, I need more, one more up tempo song. I sort of sent, you know, I have a little home studio and I sent the guys a little drum track and a guitar part. And David was like, this is incredible. Like we have to do this song. So, um, after the session, Charlie went back to Carl's, did the drums and David went down and, and, and sang it when he did, um, some of the overdubs for the, the lead vocals. So that was interesting. Kind of like writing a re- song remotely too, um, which also opened our eyes to a lot of stuff. We're like, whoa, like we can do this remotely. And then, you know, we ended up doing this for cover um in 2021 and we did a Christmas song for fun. We did a pokes cover. Everyone's got a little set up now. So um, if we ever do decide to write another record, it'll be a lot of fun because we can sort of just write it this way. Maybe when we, you know, descend on nashville or something again we'll actually know what the hell we're doing
1: no that's excellent yeah i i need to get into that uh remote recording thing i've been meaning to do that for years now but uh it'll happen when it happens
2: no it happened. just dude you are you already have like a you're talking on a microphone like that's all you need
1: (laughs) i know i yeah i'm making it more complicated than i need to i think i'm like oh i got to get the interface and this and that and plugins but no i like i could I could probably do it right now with the equipment that I have. It just wouldn't be as sophisticated.
2: You could mic an acoustic guitar. You could send me a track and I could, you know, I could put something on top of it and send it back to you. And then you could play the game of telephone with the next, with the next person who's going to participate on it. That's the, uh, it's the frightening thing, but it's also about, you know, how, how easy it is to do, but it's also, um, it's also the, the wonderful thing about, you know, making music in, in this, in this decade.
1: You're inspiring me Adam both in uh pu- you know making me realize that I can do this already and just you know when you when you said like you're performing with the band and if someone's like oh I don't like that part you just change it. I need to learn some of that cuz if I'm playing with people and like they make a face when I'm playing something I'm like what? What you don't like it? <laughs> Come up with something better then.
2: Yeah, I mean that that doesn't go away completely but um you know the 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 little like whatever dude on my shoulder, you know. I had him there the whole session just being like, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You're making a record with your best <laughs> friends. Nothing matters. Nothing matters. You're here, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I, I, I looked at it. And I think every other guy in the band felt the same way, which was just really nice to hear after, after we were done.
1: It's gotta be nice that everybody is friendly now, right? I mean, you can tour together, you can perform together. You wrote a new record together because there were many years where you weren't talking to each other.
2: Yeah. Those are many bitter, bitter years. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think everyone's lives have turned out great. And I think everyone's sort of just grateful for the experiences and, you know, grateful for anything that's yet to come. So what is to come, Adam? What's coming up? What
1: can we look forward to?
2: Um, I don't, I can't say for sure what's happening. I mean, you know, I have sent some demos out to the guys because I'm a crazy person who doesn't stop working on music. And, uh, so, you know, maybe that'll go somewhere. Um, some other things that I, I want to do, like we have up some B sides from the red weather sessions that I, I've been, um, we've been toying with putting out some releases we want to do, you know, um, there's some records that are out of print. Um, we did some stuff in between the Moon My Saddle and, and Fates that never really got a, a, a fair shake. And then it's exhausting to think about, but you know. Some I don't like it that some of our records are out of print too. That, you know, the Moon My Saddle is just like Top Shelf did a, a reissue of it, but that's it's completely out of print. You know, I'd like to maybe do a special edition of that one day too. So lots of lots of projects, lots of Chamberlain things that might happen. You know i would love to go we had such a great time in europe i'd love to go back we've never been to australia we've never been to brazil like there's definitely like things that may or may not happen anything that i just talked about like none of it might happen (laughs) or all of it could happen i i really don't know Uh, we played some shows in april so you know that's miraculous to me i feel like you know, we do these, we do these things sort of piecemeal. It's like, you know, all right, we play some shows, everybody go back to their lives. Let's talk in a few weeks and figure out what we might do next. And that's kind of how we approach things.
1: Yeah. So there's no specific plans, but it sounds like there's plenty of potential, like uh, record reissues that you're talking about, right? Is Exit 263 potentially one of
2: those? Well, Exit 263 is weird because that was that weird period where like, you know we had different band members and it's not a record it's a it's a collection of demos that our management at the time put out as a record (laughs) yeah when we weren't talking to each other that came out kind of like (laughs) unbeknownst to us um and it's 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 weird um I'm, i'm glad a lot of people like those songs and a lot of those songs i think had potential i mean when i hear it i'm like oh my god like Somebody needs to re-record these fully realized ideas because they're all like half-baked demos, you know, recorded. And I recorded a lot of those songs on like an old digital 8-track recorder in our practice space. Like, they're not – it wasn't meant to be a record. But it's cool. I mean, people gravitate towards it. People like it. Like, who am I to say that it's good or it's not good? It's all objective. But um, it's just – I don't consider it a Chamberlain record.
1: So, wait, management put it out without
2: you guys knowing? I think we knew, but we just didn't care <laughs> that that's how much we had folded in the tent at that point. Yeah. Oh,
1: so they're like, we're going to put this out, but you're almost too don't care enough to even fight it.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> well, it must have been good. You said you played some shows in April. It must have been good to play after the long uh, pandemic hiatus.
2: Well, we played two shows and we played Chicago and Indianapolis in 2021, sort of like right as like Delta was hitting. And that was a little weird. And then there was a huge surge happening in in April, COVID surge. And it was just like, and now, you know, now we're in another surge. I I hate to talk about COVID, but um, everything just doesn't feel like I thought it was going to feel, you know, it still just feels like a little strained for people. I still know people that don't go to shows that don't want to come out, but the turnouts were good and the shows were good and we played great. And we had uh, most importantly, we had like a ton of fun. Um, and it, it felt it did feel good to be together and playing these songs from like red weather that like never we never got a chance to play live right um so it's cool that we got to play them no oh, that's great so uh what do you do when you're not doing chamberlain i do a lot of music supervision and i primarily in addition to that um do a lot of film score stuff and some commercial music work
1: that's right. You do music composition for film and TV. Talk about some of that. What do you do? What do you do it for? This is very interesting.
2: Um, well, I started working at a commercial music house in, um, well, the owner of the company would not like me calling it a commercial music house. Uh, but it was a company called Man Made Music that are now called Made Music Studio and kind of learned, uh, learned the studio better than I'd ever known it there. And through that, I started working on a film called Madora. Uh, which is a documentary about, um, basketball, high school basketball team in Indiana. And that was kind of like my first real, like film film that I worked on. Um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. I just met like more directors. Um, I worked on a film called nine man, um, which is a PBS film. And I, I got to do a 30 for 30 for ESPN called kid Danny. Uh, with that same director, I worked on a, a feature, which you can have on on Netflix called, um, night school, did a couple of things for stars. Um, movie called rape of reese taylor i don't know i don't want to give you my whole elevator pitch but basically what i I do i'm yeah i'm working on something for discovery right now so i've been very lucky and very blessed to like have all these cool projects and cool films to work on but i kind of just fell backwards into it um like i said i i just took a job at a commercial music studio and just started thumbing my way um into that industry and just figuring out a way to to do something with music, you know, I, I can't, I, I have, to, I always have the itch to, to write stuff. So if I can't play in a band, <laughs> I got to write for something. And, uh, and, and music for film is just, it's a total joy. It's like, you know, you're, you're telling the same story that you would, um, with lyrics in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. It's gotta be so great. I do little video stuff and I'll match up video with existing music and all that kind of thing, but to actually create the music, for the thing you're watching, it's gotta be unbelievable.
2: Yeah. If you're working with the right director, it is. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not too frustrating, it is. No, I mean, uh, I've been very proud of a lot of the things that I've I've got to work on. What's it like if you're not working with the right director? <laughs> I gotta choose my words carefully. I don't wanna uh revisions are always just annoying. If you really, you know, if you put a piece of music to picture and you're like, wow, this is expressing the exact emotional takeaway that I was hoping it would it's, you know, it's, it's hitting with, with every, um, cut. It's exactly what I want. And then, you know, the director tells you it's all wrong and you've stayed up all night working on it. It's frustrating.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I've made videos before and I'm like, this is perfect. It's hitting me right in the heartstrings. And someone will be like, take out this part. And I'm like, but that's the part, uh, you know, but it's like the director chooses. That's just the way it goes.
2: Yeah, director chooses, and uh, you have to surrender to that. You know, you have to put on your red weather hat, where it's like it doesn't matter. You you got the gig; (laughs) it's all going to be good. We're going to try different ideas, and it's going to come out great. And it always does come out great. Um, But some of that, you know, ego and frustration from the early Split Lipper Chamberlain days definitely creeps creeps back in in those moments.
1: (laughs) No, I get it. I that's uh, something I have to quell constantly. It's a it's a constant battle. And what what kind of instruments are you using? for the film production
2: what are you playing composing you know it's you would think i prefer to do guitar stuff you know i prefer to do like kind of hybrid orchestral ambient guitar stuff um but that's like almost never the call so i've kind of just taught myself how to be a better keyboard player and um i program a lot of stuff you know if i need a string section like i play it very slowly few notes at a time until i have what i need (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but yeah it's like i would say what i do is sort of like hybrid orchestral there's always like orchestral small chamber sized, sort of modern classical stuff that that are in a lot of the films i work on you know with other modern elements whether it's samples i find whether it's guitar parts that i play that sort of thing i wish i could talk about this film i'm working on now but i've signed the nda i can't talk about it but um, if you follow me on social media, you'll, you'll hear about it eventually. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, and then I'm, um lot of getting a whole big thing about this. I don't, I'm, I'm directing, um, my first documentary as well. I had a cousin, um, who played in a band called the Barques, and he, he, uh, I never knew him. He he died in the plane crash with Otis writing in 1967. So I'm telling his story and the story of the original Barques through his lens and yeah, I've been interviewing a lot of people for it and almost done shooting. So hopefully I can get to the post production phase and find a suitor for it and all that. So that's that's my other big project I'm working on outside of this. And you know, and you know, maybe there'll be a Chamberlain release and some new music soon. We shall see. <laughs> Excellent. So
1: there's tons going on, and that's awesome.
2: Uh yes, like I said, I'm I'm very lucky. There there is a lot going on.
1: Yeah, because I've had days and years where there's absolutely nothing going on. And uh, in my life, whenever things get difficult, I just think about those times. And I'm like, you know what? I'm happy. Even if I'm unhappy right now, I'm happy because there's just constantly things to do, awesome things to do, creating things, putting things out there, playing music, all that stuff. And I hope it continues for a long time.
2: The life of a freelancer is terrifying. Um, There's definitely (laughs) laws where I just like question everything. <laughs> question all of my choices and um I, there's times where I'm completely not busy and there's times where I'm out of my head and uh you know, each have their challenges but 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 each each can be awesome in their own way too.
1: Well, Adam, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, it's mind-blowing to me. I never would have imagined back as a young 24-year-old listening to uh Chamberlain for the first time that I'd be here all these years later talking to you and I'm glad that I get to help you celebrate this record in a, the small way that I can. And look, I appreciate what you and the band do, and thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's really been fun to talk. It's been a long chat, so it means we were, we were we were having a good time.
1: <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> There you have it, folks. Adam Rubenstein. That was an excellent conversation. I'm very happy that I got to speak with Adam and help the band celebrate 25 years of Fate's Got a Driver. You know, I had heard stories about Chamberlain and, uh, you know, how they used to be Split Lip and then how they switched to Chamberlain, but I didn't know the full story. I didn't know that they had re recorded part of the album. And I didn't know that they were the only band to ever do something like that before, as Adam pointed out. So it was great to hear about that and what they're doing now. And my favorite part of the interview is, you know, Adam talked about this, just how things didn't exactly work out back in the day. Because, you know, maybe the name was holding them back and they were still playing shows within the scene that expected them to be one thing, but they were trying something different. The world wasn't quite ready for what they were trying to do. And then all this time goes by, and the rest of the world catches up. Uh, Brian from the Gaslight Anthem loves them and wants to bring them out on tour, and they're kind of having this uh, second life. And I love that. I love that they're talking again, that they're friends again, that they're performing again, and
0: that it sounds like they're writing again, too. So very, very
1: happy to talk to Adam.
0: Yeah, it was it was awesome. Actually, 1995, uh, was you know when Fates Got a Driver it came out, and that was the year I started getting into punk and hardcore. And so that this interview was really specifically poignant to me. In addition, I was actually born in Louisville and have spent time going there my whole life, and I, I love that town. And and while they're not uh, from Louisville specifically, they're Louisville adjacent, and um, I found that really interesting. And it, it just led me to go back to thinking about great bands like. Uh, Endpoint um, and falling forward, and it, it really got me thinking about that time period and and just looking at these bands. I kind of think 1995 was was the pivotal year uh, because you can look at at the the bands that were before 95 um, in that scene, and they they really kind of were more like DC like earlier emo stuff. And and um, Adam was mentioning that they they did tours with Samuel and. Ashes and, and those are DC bands. And then it's just 95 is when the get up kids and promise ring started and braid sort of, and, and um, it was just after that, when, you know, you have cham- you you split lip changing their name to Chamberlain re releasing this record, which, which is kind of surprising the same record with a new name um, that they were so motivated to do that. And then you look after that happened the whole, the whole scene, the music kind of changed, you know, you have, you have Elliot and, and Kendall became the, and Kendall's piebald kind of changed their sound from being roll around the floor, screamy to piebald. And I don't know, it was just, you know, Metro shifter. I don't know. It was just fascinating.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting. Like the, the shifts in music and the scene and bands trying different things and, Sometimes people are receptive to it and sometimes they aren't. Like in my time, Caven is the first band that comes to mind of a band who tried something different and a lot of people loved what they were doing differently and some people didn't. And it, you know, listening to you now, Seth, it's like the same thing was happening uh years earlier with all these other bands.
0: Well, at the time I wasn't super into Fate's Got a Driver and and upon revisiting it, I I, I still like split lip more personally. But the strange thing to me was that at that time, there was, it was like 95 or 96, there was a, there was an article, there was a whole article about emo that came out. I think it was in Guitar World and it was, it was titled Emo Rock and it was talking about Jimmy Eat World and Ghetto Kids and Promise Ring and stuff like that. And I feel like there's this division before that. I mean, it sounds so semantic, but it's, it's like emo core before, you know, it was more connected to hardcore. And then after, it was like emo rock, and and it's really reflected in the music. And and the strange thing to me was that I actually, you hear in the interview, Adam's talking about how their follow-up album, uh, The Moon, My Saddle, wasn't really uh, that well-received because it was sort of almost even alt-country. I mean, that record is like 10 years too early. You know, you have like Chuck Reagan doing it. About ten years later, and and you know they were innovators both as you know as Split Lip as Chamberlain uh, both you know of those records everything is just constant innovation and and whether the scene was ready to uh, accept it or not it's it shows a lot for their artistry
1: oh absolutely yeah they were they were definitely one of if not the first bands in the scene on that alt country kind of tip and you know what Adam mentioned in the interview like. He's like, I don't think the record sounded really that different from Split Lip to Chamberlain, Fate's Got a Driver. And I've gone back to YouTube and done a comparison of some of those songs, and I agree with him. In fact, I think the Chamberlain songs sound better. But hey, listen, it's it's up to the listener.
0: Yeah, I mean, whether you think they're better or, you know, one or the other, I personally think the songs sound quite different. But that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that at at all. Um, There are some great songs on all of their records um, and and a lot of great songs. But it it was interesting uh, revisiting that time when the scene, there was a lot of criticism of bands that sounded, that came out of the scene, out of the hardcore scene, out of the punk scene, that started sounding a bit more mainstream. He made some sort of comment that uh, some of the criticisms, that they received were that it, it sounded like a Counting Crows record. I thought that was kind of <laughs> kind of funny um, because that, that would have been one of the criticisms that I would have made of a band like that because I was, at that time, quite critical.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny to hear that now because when I got into hardcore, I guess around the year 2000, the second Counting Crows record, that was like a record that every hardcore kid liked. Like every hardcore kid would mention that record.
0: Maybe in Philly. I don't know about Boston. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. I shouldn't say every, I, maybe like five people that I knew, but that was everyone to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, it was, it was interesting because he, he also talked about, you know, one of the issues when Faith's Got a Driver came out, he, he described it as old guys with angry hardcore baggage. It's just so fascinating to me because even thinking about when split lip formed, what else was going on in the scene? You know, 1990, 91, You know, you, you have a dramatic change in the hardcore scene around that time. With like, you know, bands like Youth of Today breaking up, turning into Shelter. You've got Chain of Strength type of bands. Uh, you've you've got Inside Out. You have a lot of hardcore bands trying to incorporate new elements and and kind of add some metallic. Uh, elements and and kind of get away from the punk, and so you could just you could just see the 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 mi- the mixing and the milieu of what's going on in in the hardcore scene from listening to Split Lip because they started in nineteen ninety and and basically ended ninety five. It's it's this amazing time period that that I don't know we don't talk about that much.
1: Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great speaking to you and it, folks. If you're listening to this and you somehow haven't heard Chamberlain yet. Listen to Fate's Got a Driver, of course, because it's the 25-year anniversary, but I really like the new record too, Red Weather, Chamberlain is still out there, they're still doing it, they're still releasing music, they're still recording, so check them out. All right, Seth, so let's talk about how we are doing, and I'm going to start with you, Seth, because people have heard from me enough. Now, first, let's get to know you. Talk about your label, Negative Progression Records.
0: Well, uh, negative progression records started in 1996 and continued until 2014, and I just started it up again a a couple months ago. Um, I was putting out stuff uh, back in the day, mostly pop punk and emo, and this sort of intersection of those those two genres. Um, My early my earliest success, I would say, the band that most people know is a band called counterfeit they were from san diego uh really really incredible band emo band they toured a lot they were incredibly energetic and one of those bands that, that the people that knew about them loved them and uh just don't believe they got enough attention so for everyone who's listening to this if you want to check out one band on negative progression records um counterfeit would be would be the the be- a great starter yeah, I remember
1: seeing the June Spirit back in the day, too. I really liked them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Around that time, I put out uh, the June Spirit. They were they were from New Jersey. They got a lot of attention, and they were great. Um, I put out a band called Over It, who was a, kind of a fast pop punk band from Virginia. I put out their uh, first three records, and they moved to California and uh, eventually got signed to a major label. I also put out a band called The Progress. Which was an incredible band. Um, which oh, lit. that's
1: uh, Evan from Into It Over It's band, right? Yes, yes, yes. He was he was talking about that band when he was on this show.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that record. It's it's one of my favorite records I've ever put out. I've put out, you know. Si- a little bit later, I started putting out some heavier music because I've always been involved in the hardcore scene, um, but I really didn't want to put out hardcore stuff because I, I wanted to have sort of an identity uh, with my label. But as other labels, larger labels like Equal Vision and Epitaph and, and Victory started mixing genres, I figured, why not negative progression? So um, I, I put out some, some like heavier music and those records are all really good. I I would recommend everyone check them out. I, I have set up some genre specific playlists on Spotify. So if you like pop punk stuff, you can listen to that. If you like emo, listen to that. Heavy music, listen to that.
1: You have everything up on Bandcamp as well, right? Yes.
0: Yes. It's all up on Bandcamp.
1: Yeah. So go check it out, folks. And Seth, what made you want to start up the label again?
0: Well, so I'm, a, I'm an attorney by profession and... I run my own law practice. I do criminal defense work. And before that, I was a prosecutor. And so I, I put out my last uh, release in 2014. And that's kind of when I decided that, you know, so many years, uh, 17, 18 years of uh, working hard, uh, trying to promote bans, I just needed to shift a little bit at that point. And I started focusing on the law and started really emphasizing my legal career But over the years, I started really missing music and just being involved in music. And and occasionally bands would get in touch with me, uh, bands that maybe I was friends with that were on other labels that were in new bands or bands that used to be on negative progression that were in new bands. And and they they approached me regularly. But the last year or two, there have been a lot of like podcasts like yours and great labels like Iodine. Uh, Casey over there is a friend of mine. And just just starting up again, putting out a lot of great bands, re-releasing things. And it, it just got me all excited. So I started an Instagram and I got a lot of really positive feedback, more than I was even expecting, to be perfectly honest. And it just I, I was I was flattered. I was so flattered. And I decided to uh you know, just for fun, put out a couple seven inches and that's that's where we're going with it. We're we're taking it easy. It's not I'm not trying to make it my profession, but trying to, uh, you know, be involved and uh, signed a great band from Long Island called Gone Stereo. They sound kind of like face to face and uh, they're really, really awesome. There's a single out now and uh, I would recommend if you like pop punk California style, you would definitely like this. And I just signed a, a band called the Great Out and they're from California And actually, it's four of the five members of This Time Next Year, which was a great band on Equal Vision.
1: Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah. Your story sounds kind of like mine too. In 2013, I started the career that I'm in now, and I was just super busy all the time. And and I just didn't really have time for anything. And I, I never stopped listening to music or going to shows, but it certainly went on the back burner for a bit. And in 2017, things changed and I was on Instagram more and I discovered all these different scene sites and all these things and the podcast sprung out of that. I just really reconnected with everything in a deep way that I haven't since I was young. So, you know, I'm glad that I'm doing this. And Seth, I'm glad that you're doing the label again. It sounds like there's a lot of excellent stuff coming up.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying it. And I think Right now, there's some nostalgia happening. I don't know if it happens to be because we're of a certain age or whatnot, but it's great that a lot of bands are getting back together and touring. And, and maybe it's post-COVID, we all want to go you know, get rid of some energy and, and go to shows. And I think that's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm often asked if I'm going to re-release old records on vinyl. Um, my emphasis has always been finding new bands, finding young bands, putting out new stuff. Like I, I once read an interview with Ian MacKay, and he said, every new band is more important than every old band because those old bands, they already created their art and the new bands, they have new art to create. So that, I think that's so cool. I've always been a big, big uh, discord records uh, fan.
1: I love that. Yes. I, same here. I like to acknowledge the past and focus on the future. There is much more to accomplish, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, let's hope. I mean, that would be uh depressing if it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> so, how are you doing, Seth? I mean, you personally. What what's your story? You got family?
1: What do you got going on?
0: Um, yeah, I'm doing I'm doing very well actually. I I uh about 8 years ago, I moved back to uh Orlando, Florida, where I grew up. And uh previously, I, I lived in in Boston and and uh San Francisco and Brooklyn, so I have I have a lot of friends from the scene and otherwise in those places. And so I moved back, back to where my, my uh, family lives and uh, started uh, working as a prosecutor. Then I ended up starting my own law firm, like I said before, and that's going well. Uh, I really like criminal law because I feel like I'm really making an impact in people's lives on, on both sides, actually. On the side of the prosecution, you get to help make the community safer. And work hard to make sure justice is done and on the defense side you have to you know make sure that you help an individual person and 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 uh, ensure that they they're taken care of and that the Constitution is upheld on top of that I uh, recently got uh, married a little more than a year ago so that's wonderful and, excellent yeah um, that's you know that's that's the main thing I'm enjoying the sunshine and uh, trying to trying to do a lot of Traveling by car. I'm not not really getting back into the flying thing just yet, but uh, you know, there's a lot of lot of great places to go visit in the in the southeast, and uh, been trying to do that.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. I've had to fly a couple times since this whole uh, new world thing kicked off, but it's not so bad. I just leave the mask on the whole time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we're all we're all learning how to. Uh, reconnect with each other in different ways and new ways, and I mean, to a certain extent, there's there's been uh, gasoline added to the fire of technology. I mean, you and I aren't in the same place. You're in New York, and I'm in Florida, and we're able to to do this, and uh, that's pretty awesome. And I mean, geez, just being able to uh, normalize Zoom and and video is is amazing, technologically amazing. I mean, I think back to uh, I mean, I was listening to a podcast with I can't remember who it was some old some older band and they were talking about going on tour and having used dialers uh, <laughs> call uh, for the next show or, or book and I mean I was booking tours in in the 90s as well and and uh, I I booked I was a local promoter as well and I, I just think about the technology it, it's it's fascinating and and that's one of the challenges of, of running a label now is that back then the hard part was a band wanted to get their music heard so it had to be a situation where you help them get their record in stores. But now, anyone can just record at home and put their stuff up on Spotify. So now the difficulty for a label is highlighting, you know, finding this needle in the haystack and, and shining a spotlight on them and highlighting them and getting them attention. That's, that's challenging.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I hear you on the technology thing. My company still wasn't using Teams or video or anything like that. We were still just on the phone doing proposals and all this kind of stuff. And that seems unbelievable to me. Like uh, up until 2020, that's the way it was.
0: Oh, yeah. And a lot of businesses now are thinking that because COVID is quote unquote over, they want to go back to doing things the way that they were doing them before. And half of the workforce is uh, opposed to that, so we're we're still in for some changes. But I, I hope everyone. I know this is a time where people have been focused on the negative things going on, and there's plenty of negative things going on. I'm not going to dismiss it, but I, I I hope people spend a little bit of time and energy thinking about the accomplishments, the good things that that have happened, and and there have been. Good things that have happened over the last few years.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the New Scene podcast came as a result of the pandemic. And what could be better than that? Nothing.
0: (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Talking to someone who's a major Ink and Dagger fan is is so exciting for me.
1: That's it. Yeah, folks, before uh, we hit record, we were talking about Ink and Dagger and how Seth saw them in Boston and our mutual love of the band. And that's always going to be a talking point for me. That will never change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I like talking about different scenes and, you know, Philly and Boston and New York because I was in Boston from 96 to 2000. And I think that was that was a very special time in that in that scene there. Oh, God. Yeah. You, you, you must have seen it all. Well, <laughs> it was awesome. It was fun. I, I met a lot <laughs> of great friends.
1: That's great. Well, folks, we're almost out of time. But listen, Before I go, I want to remind you that we're going to be here. We're back Monday with another all-star guest. We've got amazing guests coming up. We have more amazing guest co-hosts coming up. There's going to be no shortage. There's going to be no shortage of wonderful things coming from the new scene. And folks, if you're on Twitch, follow me and turn on notifications. I'm going to be doing a lot more live streams in July and August. So check it out. We want to thank Adam Rubenstein for coming on the show. We want to wish Chamberlain a happy 25 years of Fate's Got a Driver. And I want to thank Seth Hyman from Negative Progression Records for joining me in the co-host chair. Seth, thank you so much for joining me on the show. And that's it. We're back Monday. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time.
3: The carry me home now, and I've stayed too long. We're a brave man to sift the stars dry and leave sleep alone. And I've built this house out of a fate-driven dream walls are what they see. I've built this house out of a fate driven dream, and these walls are what they Follow you down. Light breaks again, and I can't follow you down.